Hi, friends. Thank you for listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope. My name is Kurt Linville. I have been providing this insight into the whole coronavirus COVID-19 situation since the beginning. And in my last episode, I said that I would not send out another episode until I felt like there was something very notable to say. And I've been debating when this should be said and how much to be said. I finally today decided something must be said. So here I go. First, I want to read you a definition of the word cavalier, marked by or given to offhand and often disdainful dismissal of important matters. Why did I read you that? Because I do not want to be taken as cavalier in the slightest for the remarks that I am about to make on this episode. I have given this careful consideration, and I feel like these thoughts have to be put out there. So here they are. First, I want to address the Great Barrington Declaration. And you probably have not heard of the Great Barrington Declaration. Let me give you a little bit of background about that. The Great Barrington Declaration was a declaration that was signed by key epidemiologists back on October the 4th and has since then been signed by tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of others. And the Great Barrington Declaration was signed in the United States in Great Barrington. That's where it got its name. I am going to read the declaration to you in its entirety because it's not very long and it makes some very important points. But before I do, I want to tell you just a little bit more about it. It was authored by and initially signed by Dr. Martin Kuldorf, the professor of medicine at the Harvard University, a biostatistician and epidemiologist with expertise in detecting and monitoring infectious disease outbreaks and vaccine safety evaluations also authored and signed by Dr. Sunetra Gupta, professor at Oxford University, an epidemiologist with expertise in immunology, vaccine development, and mathematical modeling of infectious diseases, also authored and signed by Dr. J. Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician epidemiologist, health economist, and public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations. Now you know the authors. And who has signed this? 35,236 medical practitioners. We're talking about doctors, nurses, surgeons, etc. 35,000. Medical and public health scientists, 12,115. Concerned citizens, 638,920. So over 600,000 citizens, 12,000 medical and public health scientists, and over 35,000 medical practitioners have signed this declaration. You can sign it too. If you go to gbdeclaration.org, that's GB, like Great Barrington, declaration.org, then you can also sign it. Now, this came out on October 4th, and when I first heard about it sometime later, I googled it, and it did not pop up at the top or anywhere near the top of the Google search results. And I was puzzled by that because it seemed like it would be something that Google would certainly be watching. It's a big event. It's an important document. Then a little media blip happened that the White House was reviewing the Great Barrington Declaration. And that little media blip made it public knowledge on some level. When that happened, then Google started returning the website gbdeclaration.org when you search for Great Barrington Declaration. Go figure. Seems to me that Google was suppressing this document. 
I can't say that for sure, but that's what the evidence indicates might be the case. I don't know why, but I am pointing it out. Now you can find it simply by Googling Great Barrington Declaration if you'd like to. As promised, here is the reading of the Great Barrington Declaration. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Coming from both the left and right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short- and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in the years to come, with the working class and the younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know that the vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity, i.e., the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent on, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection while better protecting those who are at highest risk. We call this focused protection. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, Nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households, can be implemented and is well within the scope and capability of public health professionals. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures, such as hand washing and staying home when sick, should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities, such as sports, should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are at more risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. Please let me highlight a couple of the points that I just read. 
One, adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. Second highlight, those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. And one more highlight from near the top of the declaration. In reference to the lockdowns that we've all been enduring, they said, keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. So I ask you a simple question. When three of the world's most renowned epidemiologists get together, create this document, sign it, and then tens of thousands of health professionals and scientists also sign it, and then over 600,000 citizens sign it as well, why have you not heard of it? I believe the obvious answer is that the COVID-19 epidemic has become politicized. And once something becomes politicized, then we start seeing the suppression of information, and the free exchange of ideas also is suppressed. And it's really tragic, too. Because when a crisis of this level hits the entire planet, we need all the ideas on the table. We need everyone working for the best possible outcomes and the best possible solutions. And I fear that that is not happening anymore. I pointed out that in the beginning, Google wouldn't even feature this in a Google search. Now they do, which is good, but they didn't. I also pointed out that you probably have not heard of this in the mainstream media. Why would that be? What's really going on here? I'll let you answer those questions for yourself. But if you've been listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope, you know that what the Great Barrington Declaration is suggesting is the solution that I have also suggested. It's just one idea. It may not even be the best idea, but it's an idea that is worthy of consideration and it should be in the public space and everyone should be aware of it and we should be talking about it and making wise decisions. These epidemiologists are not foolish people who don't know anything. These are three of the world's most renowned epidemiologists who put together this document. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here away from the Great Barrington Declaration, and I want to talk a bit about vaccinations. We will have a vaccine, or many vaccines as the case may be, for COVID-19 in the somewhat near future. And I, I don't know when the first one will come out. I don't know what the true efficacy will be, and I don't know what the risks will be. But as we know, for all vaccines... There is a risk versus benefit calculation that has to be made. You don't inject foreign bodies into people, into their bloodstream and into their muscles, into their tissues without there being risk. So the vaccine needs to be evaluated, risk versus benefit. Now, if the benefit that we're talking about is herd immunity for the planet and resuming normalcy in our lives, rebooting economies and stopping this crazy lockdown season that we've endured now for over six months. If that's what the benefit is, then it seems like quite a lot of risk might be tolerated for that. 
However, let's put this in terms of individuals. Let's say you're 20 years old and you're healthy. Then you are at very little to no risk from being substantially harmed by COVID-19. There are some people who have a genetic marker that's a little off who are more susceptible, but that's extraordinarily rare. The point is that if you are a young adult or a child, this disease is of very little consequence for the vast, vast, vast majority of the population. So what is your risk that you would use to evaluate whether or not the vaccine is something you need? Now let's turn the tables a little bit. Let's say that you're older, you do have some underlying medical conditions that are troubling, and you know that you may be one of the vulnerable in the population, that COVID-19 could be more serious for you. Now I want to point out that even for the older and more vulnerable populations, the death rate is extraordinarily low. But that said, people are being hurt and dying from COVID-19. So you have a higher risk factor. The benefit to you could be much, much higher for taking the risk of taking the vaccine than it would be for a young adult or a child. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because the media keeps talking about the vaccines as the solution, as what's going to save humanity from this great evil, and as speaking of it in universal terms. This concerns me. The reason is because if the vulnerable populations are vaccinated and they developed immunity from the vaccine, And if the young, non-vulnerable populations don't need a vaccine, why would we administer a vaccine universally? Let me repeat that. If those who are vulnerable to COVID-19 are vaccinated so they're protected, and those who are not vulnerable are not vaccinated, then we will develop herd immunity over time without increasing the death rate. And that allows billions of people to forgo the risk inherent to the vaccination. What risk, you ask? We don't know. We may not know for years what the risks are. I've been reading some very disturbing reports that have been coming out of the trials, very disturbing reports. Some of these vaccines have not been inert. People have gotten extraordinarily sick, and some people have had some really significant mental health effects from taking the vaccine thus far. So In time, we'll know more about the vaccines, and I'm not trying to scare you away from them. I'm just saying there will always be risks inerrant with any vaccine. That's the the nature of vaccinations. And does that mean you shouldn't have a vaccine? No. It means you should evaluate your risk versus benefit and make a wise decision. But this is what I'm concerned about. Why would we ever vaccinate children who, for them, COVID-19 is like a light cold? Why would we ever vaccinate them against this when they can become naturally immune without the risk of the vaccination? Now, some may argue that the vaccine has lower risk than the illness itself. While that is likely true for vulnerable populations who have underlying medical conditions or age that make them more susceptible to the harmful effects of COVID-19, it's yet to be seen whether it is true for the younger and healthy populations. Yet I have a suspicion that everyone is going to be encouraged and encouraged very strongly, perhaps even legally, to be vaccinated against the COVID-19 illness. I don't think that's right. That reeks to me of profiteering while risking others to do so. I don't think it's right. I do believe that where the vaccines can help those that are most vulnerable to COVID-19, that it may be a fantastic solution. But for the healthy and the young, I, uh, I don't think that vaccination should be forced at all, in any way. 
I found that in our society, we often think of one reason for something being done. And it's really easy for media with sound bites to list one reason for something to be done. I throw that out there because often the decision makers are weighing hundreds of reasons in making a decision for things to be done. Not one reason, not a reason. I'm not going to chase this rabbit trail down some deep, dark hole and and wallow in it. We're not going to go there. But what I do want to say is when you're trying to sort out why society at large is doing things like lockdowns, why they're encouraging the wearing of masks, why they're speaking of universally administering vaccinations, that we not just think it's because we have to beat COVID-19 and that's it, that's all. Instead, realize that decision makers have many, many reasons and there are lots of motivations to be considered and you should be wise enough to use your intelligence to consider them all. Think about what are all the potential outcomes? What are all the potential protections? What are all the benefits? What are all the risks involved? And then you can make wise decisions for yourself, exercising the freedom that you've been given. On the Great Barrington Declaration website, there are also some videos where the uh, authors and signatories are being interviewed about why they wrote the document, what their motivations are, and what they believe to be true. There's some interesting points. You might want to go watch those because they're very informative, and I offer a balanced scientific perspective to what we see going on in the general response to COVID-19. But one thing that was very interesting to me that I hadn't thought of, and I thought, well, that's very, very cool, is that since the young get COVID-19 with almost no harm whatsoever— and they develop immunity, then it really is just the older and the, the unhealthy who are vulnerable. And as the older and the unhealthy perhaps achieve immunity through vaccinations, then COVID-19 becomes another childhood illness. Kind of like the chicken pox, right? You get it as a child, it doesn't cause you any harm as a child, and then you achieve long-term immunity after that. And over time, as the population ages, this becomes just another childhood disease, and not a very difficult one. I mention that because it offers long-term hope, and I think we could use a lot of long-term hope right now. Now, in closing, I'm not going to get political, but I am going to bring up some political subjects just very briefly. The first is, if you're on the left, or if you're on the right, it doesn't matter, I love you. I love you because you are human beings who are trying to do what's best for society, and you have different ideas, perhaps, about how that should be achieved, but you are people that are reasonable, who are trying to do the best for everyone. I do want to throw in a caveat. Science has proven that about 1% of the people in the planet are sociopaths and psychopaths, and I'm not saying that to point fingers or accuse blame. I'm saying that 1% of the people out there are up to no good, okay? There are extremists on all sides, and that's why we need a strong middle ground with people working together so that we can resist the extremists who would like to do harm, okay? I don't want to be taken as naive by the left or naive by the right. What I want to say is if we work together as a strong, moderate middle, then we can avoid the destruction of these extremists on either end. The media right now is trying to paint opposing sides as evil. The left calling the right evil, the right calling the left evil. You know, lots of things are being thrown around that are not helping. We need the strong middle ground again in America, 
And instead of this extreme polarization, we need to be working together through love to find solutions that work best for everyone. You know, the media would have us think that we have these two strong camps, the left and the right, that are battling at each other and about to erupt into civil war or something. You know, it's just ridiculous. But I would like to offer this little bit of perspective. As a rule, historically, throughout the history of the world, to be liberal meant that you were looking for solutions through change. The liberals' mantra is, let's fix it. And throughout the history of the world, to be conservative meant that you wanted to be careful about change because you didn't want to ruin things that were already good. So the mantra of the right has been, let's not break it. So if the liberals are saying, let's fix it, and the conservatives are saying, don't break it, then we can see that they both want the best. The liberals want change that will help society, and the conservatives want to conserve things that are already known to be great for society. And if the two work together, then they can come up with moderate solutions that actually can be implemented with the least amount of harm and the maximum amount of good. And that's all I have to say about that. Thank you so much for listening to Weathering Coronavirus again today. If you do find this information to be helpful, please do share it and pass it on to those around you so that they can learn about the Great Barrington Declaration as well. Let's all take time to be thoughtful and to try to make wise decisions that offer the most hope and the most good for everyone involved. Thank you very much. And again, I probably will not put out another episode of Weathering Coronavirus for some time because I really am waiting until something noteworthy develops that we should be talking about. Until the next show. Thank you very much for listening today, and be safe out there.